We really are going to look at, in particular, verses 13 through 18. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it'd be worth reading from verse 1 because it does kind of run together. And as I talk tonight, I'm going to keep making reference to, especially verse 5 and verse 6, and how they kind of those thoughts carry through into the section that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so if you have a Bible, Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you, namely God. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view The one who is throwing you into confusion will pay the penalty, whoever he may be. Brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit And the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a rich section of scripture, dense, filled with meaty things that we need for life and for godliness. And we pray that you would help us to unpack this and to understand it, that we would understand how full and free the salvation you've given your people really is. And may we, may we turn away from any false saviors and be convinced again that you are fully sufficient for everything we need, and may we cast our hopes upon you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do I need a tissue? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Thank you. Nice to have a wife. She's a good wife. Um, All right. So here, Paul's talking about freedom. And we talked a little bit last week about freedom and this idea of freedom. It's dear to everyone's heart, especially if you're an American. 
freedom. But what actually is it? And I talked last week about how people are very confused about freedom. There's a lot of tension even in our culture in the way we talk about freedom. People want to talk about freedom as being free to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, having no constraints upon you whatsoever. The problem with that, of course, is that we also long for community. And to the extent that we are free to do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want, to that extent, we can't actually really have community. Real community requires you sacrificing your freedom to do whatever you want. And as you go through this passage tonight, we're going to look some more about what actually is Christian freedom. And here's what I want to say tonight. The essence of Christian freedom is being free to glorify Christ rather than yourself. The essence of Christian freedom is being free to love others rather than having to serve yourself. Now, what is it that makes it so difficult for us to embrace that idea of freedom? The thing that Paul points out here in this passage is that we really fail to believe sufficiently that what Jesus did, what Jesus did on the cross and in his life is enough for us to not have to do things to get God to like us. You see, here's the way it works. Unless you're convinced that what Jesus did was enough, you will never be free from your guilt and from your need to justify yourself to God and to other people. And as long as you're enslaved to having to justify yourself before God and other people, you'll never be able to love other people. The Christian life is about that kind of freedom. I heard one guy say at one time, he said, the Christ, being a Christian is not about thinking less of yourself as much as it is thinking of yourself less. A lot of Christians think that what it means to be a Christian is you think you're a piece of crap all the time. Really, more to the point, it's that you care about other people. And your concern is not so much with how can I get what I need, how can I glorify myself and get people to notice me, as much as it is how can I love this person. That's the heart of Christian freedom. And it can only be unleashed to the extent that you really understand the work that Jesus has done to set us free from guilt and our need to impress him with what we can do. That's what this passage is all about. Now, you might say, well, you know, as you go through this passage, it seems kind of, kind of strange, like he seems to be talking out of both sides of his mouth. He says here, for instance, in verse 18, that we're not under law. But then back up in verse 14, he says the entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbors yourself. So which is it? Is Christian freedom that we don't have to obey any laws anymore? Or is Christian freedom found in doing the law? What's, how do we make sense of that? We're going we're to unpack that a little bit tonight. But what I want you to understand is this is an absolutely critical passage for understanding the work of the Spirit and how it is that we grow as Christians. Again, like look back at verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And I said a couple weeks ago, actually it was at the end of last semester, and I said it again last week, Paul says the essence of what it means to be a Christian, the heart of what Christ came to do, was to set us free. And unfortunately, most people I know that have grown up in Christian churches, most people that have hung around Christians, if you ask them, and their life dependent on it, tell me in two or three words, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is Christianity all about? 
Almost never would they say, well, it's about freedom. Almost never will Christians say that what Christianity is all about is about freedom. But that's what Paul says in verse 1. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm, then. Don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now, as he goes through this little passage, he talks here. And if you're trying to follow the outline, I'm not keeping to it too much. That's okay. Don't worry about that. Um, You can look at it later. It'll be a reference for some of these points. I'm kind of doing my own version tonight. All right. I don't want you to be confused. But look here at verse verse, uh, 5. Well, look at verse 4 and verse 5. He sets up this contrast. And again, this is a little bit of a repeat, but it's worth repeating. Um, He says, there's a contrast. You were trying to be justified by law, have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. And then he says, but by faith we eagerly await. He's talking about living like a Christian in verse 5 versus rejecting Christianity. They still, these people that have, that have turned away from the teaching that they originally had heard. That's what's going on in Galatians, right? These people had become Christians and then some false teachers had come in and had really messed with them. And have said, no, what you thought that you're saved by grace and that, you know, you don't have to earn God's love by what you do. That's not really right. You can come into a relationship with God that way. But after you're in a relationship with God, you really better toe the line or he's going to be very disappointed in you. Now, if that sounds familiar, I think that that's the teaching that goes, goes way too often, goes on in, in Christian churches today and in Christian groups today. Uh, whether we say it outright or not, or whether we just imply it, I think most people, when they first become Christians, they have this idea that my burden's been lifted and I'm free, but the longer they're Christians, the less free they feel. And it doesn't surprise me because the more you read the Bible, if you don't understand grace, the more you read it, the more you feel like you're a complete failure all the time. Some people actually go to church, and it's always fascinating, you know, sometimes when people come up to you at church after you've preached a sermon, and they'll say, man, that was really, that was really great. And sometimes if you, if you ask them what it is about it, sometimes, some people feel that the purpose of church is to go and to get beat up and to feel really bad. And, and the pastor that does that and can rip them apart well, he gets, you know, lots of handshakes. Good sermon, Pastor. Is that really the point? For freedom, Christ has set you free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. But so many people, even though they say they're Christians, even though they think they're Christians or try to live like Christians, in reality, what they really are counting on is their ability to get God to like them, either by the things they do, and there's lots of little lists about things that you're supposed to do if you're a Christian, or the things that they don't do. And we can make fun of it and say, well, you know, Christians, you know, there's some places where you can learn that a Christian is somebody who doesn't drink, chew, what is it, drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do, right? And that's, that's what it means to be a Christian, and that's silly. And yet, a lot of people have versions of that, maybe a different list, right? And it doesn't matter whether they're more conservative churches or more liberal churches. In the more conservative churches, you better not dance, you better not drink, you better not smoke, maybe even not even play cards. At least 50 years ago, that was the, the, the deal. And now in the more liberal churches, you better make sure that you take care of the poor and that you, give all, you know, do this and that. Each, all, all the churches have their lists of the things you're supposed to do. But what Paul is saying here is that true Christianity is not about what you do or what you don't do. Look at verse 6. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Circumcision was a religious thing to do. And Paul says that's not what matters, whether you do that or whether you don't do it. What matters is, are you in Christ? Are you related to God through Christ? 
And here's the, here's the heart of this. See, Paul says that there is an objective freedom that came to us and to our lives when we became Christians. If you're a Christian or if you're wondering what Christianity is about, this is it. What Jesus did on the cross was he died the death that sinners should die. And what he did in his life of 30 years, living perfectly, loving the Lord God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his soul, with all his strength, all of that was for his people. And that if you're a Christian and you're trusting Christ by faith, what you're doing is you're saying, I will not count on what I can do, and I will not count on what I haven't done. I'm going to count on what Jesus did. There's the words of an old hymn that I like. Upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. That's the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to, to say, I don't, I don't want to rest upon what I've done or haven't done, even though it may be better than my roommate, even though you know, I may be doing a pretty good job in light of the way I've been sinned against in my life. No, you reject all of that and say, I'm going to trust solely in what Christ has done. He died the death I deserved. He lived the life that I should have lived and gives me credit for it by grace. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a Christian. But it's hard to do that. It's hard, to, it's hard to live that. That's the freedom. Do you see? If you really believe that, if I really believe that, man, it would change so many things about our lives. I, I, would, I, I would be so much less concerned with whether you like my preaching or not. If I really believe that Jesus lived and died in my place, right? I would be so much less concerned with whether somebody said hi to me when I came to RUF. I'd be so much less concerned with whether I got straight A's or whether I met the right people so that I can get a job in the music business or whatever it is that you think you have to do to take care of yourself. It would begin to melt away and be put in its proper perspective. It's one Old Testament scholar that says that the fear of God puts all other fears in their place. In other words, if we reverenced God, if what he thought about us and what he said about us was more weighty than what other people thought and what, what other people said, it would really set us free. Well, here's the thing. You are free if you're a Christian if you're a Christian, you are free from what you deserve. If you want to be free from what you deserve, namely death and hell, then throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ and ask him to save you. But if you've done that, you are free. The penalty that your sin deserves is gone. You're also free in this sense that you don't have to earn God's smile. And let me tell you, there is, there is none, no slavery like the slavery of having to earn God's favor. I mean, he sees everything. He knows everything. He can't be fooled. Right? There's no slavery like trying to impress God. That's why Paul says, look, if you're going to be circumcised, if you're going to basically say, well, I know Jesus did some great stuff on the cross, but I'm going to cover my bets and I'm going to add to that or I'm going to not trust in Christ, but instead trust in what I can do. Circumcision being kind of a prime mark of that. If, you, if you're going to go down that road, Paul says, then you have to obey the law perfectly. 
from the moment you're born to the moment you die. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. You really want to trust in that. You really want to go to sleep at night trusting that you've done enough? No, it's no wonder people are workaholics. It's no wonder people are perfectionists. They can't rest in the righteousness of Christ. That freedom, if you're a Christian, that freedom is yours, whether you feel it or not. It's objective. It's real. It's a matter of God the Father and God the Son deciding that the Son would die in your place and the Father said, I will accept your death and your righteousness in the place of this person. Okay? That's freedom. But here's the thing. That objective freedom should produce in us a subjective freedom, a life where we are becoming more and more free from our fears and from our slavery to having to try to impress God. And that's what Paul's getting at here. When he gets down here in verse 13, he's saying, you were called to be free, but he says, don't use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Listen, he's not giving it with one hand and then taking it back. He's not saying you're free, but well, you're not really free. What he's saying is your sinful nature is the exact opposite of freedom. Freedom, freedom means you no longer have to serve yourself. Until you know the love of God, until you know the love of God that covers you, you can't help but be addicted to having to take care of yourself and having to try to impress God. But when that issue has been settled because Jesus lived and died in your place, well, then you don't have to obsess all the time over what does God think about me. That's freedom. The sinful nature, see, Paul draws this contrast here about the sinful nature and about how it's in conflict with the spirit. You know what that's about? Uh, A couple of us were looking uh, at a passage in the Gospel of John um, a little while ago, and there's a passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 14. I didn't put it on your outline, but you might jot it down and look at it later. But in, at this point, Jesus is sort of giving his final instructions to the disciples before he goes to the cross, and he tells them about how he's going to send the Spirit. That after he leaves, he's going to send the Spirit, the other comforter. And he says about the Spirit that he will glorify me. Jesus says, the Spirit will be sent into the world to glorify me and take what is mine and declare it to the world. And we had a little discussion. What does it mean to take what is mine? What Jesus means is he's going to take my glory and he's going to declare it to everybody. What it means here that the spirit and the sinful nature are fighting against each other. You see this in verse 17? The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. What does the spirit want? The Spirit wants to glorify Christ. The Holy Spirit longs and desires to glorify Christ, to hold Him up as beautiful so that the whole world can see it and be drawn to Him. So therefore, if that's what the Spirit wants, what's contrary to that? What's to hold you up? To hold you up. For the, the sinful nature is the part of you that says, hey, everybody, look at me. Aren't I something? Right? The sinful nature wants to glorify you. The Spirit wants to glorify Christ and His work. 
and the battle to live the Christian life, where the real battle for freedom is fought, is over who is going to get the glory. And I can tell you, the Spirit is battling for Jesus, and he will win, right? The Bible says that every knee one day will bow. Every knee one day will bow. Christ will be seen and declared to be glorious. There are some people who for all eternity will fight that and never submit to it. And that's a grievous thing. And my prayer is that you would not be in that company. Because what you were made for was to declare the glory of Christ. You remember there's one point when he's, he's coming into Jerusalem and the people are screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? And the Pharisees tell Jesus, make them stop. Remember what he says? If they stopped, the rocks would cry out. All of creation is tuned into what it's made for, which is to declare the glories of Christ. Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare your glory. It's what you were made for, too. And here's an interesting thing. The word glory in Hebrew and in Greek is the word that means weighty. So here's what we're really talking about. Who's more weighty? Jesus or you? Jesus or what your friends think about you? Jesus or good grades? Jesus or financial security? And I know that's like a pipe dream probably for most of you. But, you know, what, what's more weighty? What will you live for? What matters most, right? What Paul's saying is the freedom that Christ earned for you where you no longer have to earn the righteousness that you need to get into God's good favor, that freedom, the freedom where you're welcomed into into God's embrace because of what Jesus did, that freedom should spill over into the way you relate to everybody. It actually will spill over. Um, He talks in verse 15, you know, that if you're not getting this, it is having an effect on your relationships. If you're biting and devouring one another, if you're gossiping and cutting other people down, it's always connected to you not really believing that Jesus' righteousness is enough for you. It's always connected to you trying to make other people look bad so you feel better about yourself. How do you get free of that? Well, you don't just set your will against it and say, I'm going to quit that. What you do is you have to look back again at the finished work of Jesus. The only thing that will set you free from needing other people to like you is to know that the God of the universe has fully accepted you into his embrace. You can't quit caring what people think about you unless there is a bigger, more beautiful love that's broken into your life, right? It's it's simple. You 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 never get over one love until a new love comes along. You know what it's like to be on the rebound. Or you know people that are on the rebound, right? You know? You know what I'm talking about, right? When you've had a crush on somebody, you've dated somebody, and then you break up, and everybody's like, "Uh uh-oh, look out. This person is looking for a new love to drive out that first love, to help them forget about that, that person, right? It's true. You will never... You will never be able to let go of taking care of yourself and caring for yourself until the love of God is more beautiful and believable and your eyes are open to see it, right? 
So this objective freedom, Christ living and dying in your place, should spill over into your life and affect you in such a way that you're like, if Christ has settled the issue of me standing before God, then all of a sudden I can turn my attention to other things, to caring for other people, loving other people. And that's what Paul talks about here. That's freedom. Now, where I'm at, if you want to know, is on, page, is on, on the back, on Roman numeral 4. This is freedom. This is freedom to be set free from our guilt and fear and to be released to love God and others. See, Paul's command to love one another is not a restriction on Christian freedom. It's spelling out what Christian freedom is all about. It's freedom from being so darn consumed with yourself and worried about yourself and always thinking about yourself and wondering what other people are thinking about you. Freedom is when you don't have to think about that anymore because Christ has settled what God thinks about you. And that has to, that has to begin to carry over into your life. It does. See, it's only meditating upon the love of Jesus and his loveliness that can begin to melt your heart so that you begin to think that, that other people really matter. And until, until the love of Christ has set you free from having to earn God's favor, then everything you do and everything you have has to be used to try to get God to like you. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor up in New York, has this illustration. He says, listen, imagine if somebody comes to you and says, I want to marry you. And, and, then, and then they say, well, uh, I'm going to marry you, but only if you come with an inheritance. <laughs> We're not going to be real excited about that. You're not going to feel very loved. You're going to feel used. And see, there's a spiritual analogy to that. If, if you come to God and say, God, I want to love you, but only if you give me this and give me that. God, you're using God. You're using God. You're not actually serving God for who he is or loving God for who he is, for his beauty. You're trying to get him into your favor. And so all the Christian things that we do end up getting twisted. And you know that they've gotten twisted when things happen in your life that you didn't want and you feel that God has been unfair. Suffering is always very revealing. Suffering sometimes will help you realize that, man, I thought I'd done enough stuff to guarantee that God would bless me the way I want to be blessed. And, and, and then suffering comes and you realize, whoa, God's not in my debt? <laughs> What's up with that? Man, I did him a favor. I walked the aisle when the preacher told me I should and I accepted him into my heart. He should be grateful and bless me. No. God is to be worshipped, not used. And you see, suffering is one of his best tools to help you realize that you're using him rather than worshiping him. And it has a lot to do with how we respond in the midst of suffering. I like, I like this, um, this quote by Charles Spurgeon. It's actually a couple points up above number four. Um, th- th- listen to this. He says, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. No big deal. But when I knew him to be my father... Then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. 
This is what Paul's getting at here. As long as you think that God is a cruel taskmaster, you will never live for him. You will try to manipulate him, try to pull the wool over his eyes, try to deflect his attention from you towards other people that are more serious sinners. The only thing that will actually melt your heart and energize you to fight against the sinful nature is for Christ to be glorified. And that's what the Spirit is here to do. The Spirit is striving with your sinful nature to say, you don't, you don't deserve any glory. God deserves the glory. Christ deserves the glory. If you're, tempted to, to, if you're tempted to sin, if you're tempted to lie, for instance, to cover yourself so that people don't see how full of flaws you really are, what's wrong? You've forgotten, you've forgotten that Jesus has cleansed you. And you think you, you need to be cleansed by, by covering over your sin and your flaws with your own lies and your own manipulations. You're never going to be set free from that slavery to having to cover yourself until you submit to the covering that Jesus provides. And this isn't just something for when you first become a Christian. This is an ongoing need for all of us. Look at verse 5. What Paul is saying here, he's saying this is the way the Christian life is, is is lived. He says, but by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. What he's saying, he's saying that there is an ongoing spiritual practice or discipline, if you will, of filling your heart with the righteousness that is guaranteed to come to you one day. If you are a Christian, know this, God has said over you, not guilty, and you are righteous in my sight. You've done everything in my sight that you need to do because Jesus has done everything that was needed to do, right? I've said before, the righteousness is basically the beauty of holiness, Righteousness is the beauty of holiness that earns God's love. You didn't do it, but Jesus did. And it's given to you as a free gift. And the way that sin and your sinful nature is fought against and the way your sinful desires are melted within you is to continually look at that righteousness and how beautiful it is and compare it to all these other righteousnesses that you're hoping in right? They all will appear empty when you look at the righteousness of Christ, right? You know that, that old uh, preacher story about how bank tellers get trained to, spout, to spot counterfeits, not by looking at counterfeits, but by looking at real dollar bills over and over and over again, right? That's the reality. The more you look at the righteousness of Christ, the less you'll be taken in by all these other pseudo-gospels, So when your heart says to you, man, if I could just get X, then everything would be great. You say, heart, (laughs) that's ridiculous. How can that begin to compare with the love of Jesus that I already have? When your heart says, you really need this, you say, come on, heart, what are you you talking about? Why would I need that? I have this, right? This is what it means to be spirit-led. A lot of confusion about what it means to be led by the Spirit. That passage in John 16 is very helpful. The role of the Spirit is to glorify Christ, and the role of the Spirit in your life is to glorify Christ. That's what he says here. In verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under law. What does that mean, not under law? It means that you're no longer under the condemnation, and you're no longer in the slavery of thinking that I need to obey the law to get God to love me. If you're led by the Spirit, the Spirit is going to be reminding you and convincing you of the truth that what Jesus did set you free. 
And that setting you free, that truth, as that begins to get into your heart and sink down into your soul, that's when you begin to actually experience freedom and be able to say, I don't need to live for myself. Jesus lived in my place. Now I can turn my attention to other people. That's what the Spirit is out to do. See, Christian freedom is not freedom to do whatever you want. How petty. How petty. Uh, to, to be, that's not freedom. To do what you spontaneously feel like doing is to be enslaved to your nature. Real freedom is freedom from having to always focus on ourselves and having to say yes to our sinful desires. And the only way that that freedom comes is when you're convinced that the righteousness of Christ is more weighty than your own righteousness. It's not a life of perfect obedience. He says here, there's a conflict, verse 17, so that you don't do what you want. But there is a general direction and there is an eagerly anticipating and waiting for the righteousness that's guaranteed. You know, a lot of people are confused. The word hope in the Bible never means sort of just this vague optimism. The word hope in the Bible is a solid, sure word. It means if there's something that we hope for, it's something that we're taking possession of by anticipation. We already have it. It's so secure and so solid and so guaranteed that we can enjoy it and use it even now so that you can start to use this righteousness on your sin and say, look at this thing. This this thing that I'm trusting in is so empty and is so is so meager compared to the beauty of Christ, the patience of Christ, the love of Christ, right? The Spirit is at work to do that. That's what He's doing. That's what He wants to do when you read the Bible. That's what He wants to do when you sing, when you pray, when you fellowship. It's what you need your friends to do and the Spirit to use your friends to do to convince you that Jesus really did what He said, that His righteousness is enough. And you can rest in that. You can rest in that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your work. And we thank you that you sent your spirit to remind us and convince us again that your work really was sufficient. Lord, to know that what you did on the cross makes us fully acceptable in the Father's eyes. To know that everything that would make the Father want to run away from us and turn his face from us has been dealt with in your death on the cross. Lord, what glory to know that. What security to know that. Lord, may that security settle our fears and set us free from having to, having to get our own glory. Lord, you deserve all the glory, all the honor. Tune our hearts to sing your praise. Restore our sanity. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.